like this motorcyclist to wear a helmet. <laughs> Livery or die name, I'm sure. <laughs> Look at that yard sale. <laughs> <laughs> to the right, there was a yard sale. <laughs> Thank you for narrating. <laughs> And Amanda started shopping for product. (laughs) You can probably hear a third voice with us in the car. That's Jane's friend, Amanda Bedard. She's also Jane's life coach. It was actually in Unity on Unity Stage Road. Okay. So probably have to go down. We're headed toward Unity. It's a small town just eight miles south of Claremont. Pretty secluded, very secluded. Amanda and I are following Jane as she brazenly marches into the woods. When we get to a sort of clearing, I glance behind me and see Amanda double over. Yeah, it was almost like there was like there was, there was like almost like a barrier. I don't know. Oh, full body chest. I I felt you, you you feel the energy too. Like I almost don't even want to go. Amanda's right. I felt something too. It was a twist of nausea, a hot seed of despair in my gut. We've all been drawn here. This place has been visited before. These woods hold secrets. And place, I believe, holds power. We're all tuning into something unseen in the dense undergrowth of the Unity Forest. On August 9th, 1981, the body of a missing woman was found here. It was almost seven years to the date before Jane's attack. The local papers reported that the body had been found by some loggers working the forest off of Unity Stage Road. We can still see evidence of a logging road, a rutted dirt path up a hill grown over by thicket and weeds. No official information has been released as to the state of the woman's body, but on the New Hampshire Attorney General website, the following is written, quote, The medical examiner was unable to determine a cause of death because of the condition of the body, but the circumstances surrounding her disappearance and death are suspicious. At the time, Sullivan County Sheriff Floyd Potter said that the case was being investigated as a homicide. It wasn't until a month later that New Hampshire State Detective Major Richard Campbell announced that they had identified the woman, the woman in the woods was Mary Elizabeth Critchley. You're listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell. This is episode two.
Dark Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the first seven episodes, sign up for a subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content. Mary Elizabeth Critchley went missing on July 26, 1981. At the time of her disappearance, she was 37 years old. She had last been seen hitchhiking on the Massachusetts Turnpike at a toll booth at Exit 13 near Framingham, Massachusetts. The Mass Pike, or I-90, has since been redistributed, so that exit would now be number 117. Framingham, Massachusetts, is about 130 miles from Unity, New Hampshire. There are a couple routes you could take from point A to point B. Up US 3 North, up US 10 North, which would pass through Keene and Swansea, and then up I-93 North. Each route would equally take about two and a half hours to travel. Mary Elizabeth Critchley was living in Waterbury, Vermont, and Waterbury is an additional one and a half hours north of Unity. So why was she hitchhiking in Massachusetts, so far from home? And why was she taken to New Hampshire? And of course, who murdered her? Jane and I hit the library. Body found in unity. Mary Elizabeth, where they have a lot of info on her that we can talk about. Where she was from, what she was doing. Certified as a movement therapist? Yeah. At the Levon Institute in New York City and taught in Japan, Colorado, and Vermont, as well as Connecticut. What a cool lady. She had three brothers and five sisters. Wow, big family, too. Yeah. Mary Elizabeth Critchley was known as Betsy by her friends and family. It took a while to track down the Critchley family, but I finally got the opportunity to talk to her brother, Jay and her sister, Jerry. And I really don't know how best to introduce the Critchleys, other than to say they are two of the coolest and most accomplished people I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. We grew up in Connecticut, Forestville, Connecticut, a little tiny town. My father was born at the bottom of the hill, lived in the middle of the hill for until he was 41, and then he married my mother, moved to the top of the hill and had nine children. Jay is a visual, conceptual, and performance artist out of Provincetown, Massachusetts, and Jerry has had a storied career in the nonprofit sector in D.C., working to establish international education exchange and development. So it was quite interesting. We had a a baseball field, which was like a public park, and we used to do fundraisers for the African missions, remember Jay? (laughs) The African missions. I ended up going into the Peace Corps in Africa and I realized that may have something to do with it. Everyone in the entire neighborhood would offer one of their talents, like their little horse down the street, pony. We'd have pony rides around the baseball field and charge 10 cents and give it to the missions. And then in the evening, we'd have a bebop uh, dance that Jay sort of coordinated. It was in the garage. And we would have music and everybody would come in from all over the place and they'd just dance. It would just be a dance out. And 
then we also, my uncle had bought an island off the Connecticut shore with no electricity and no running water. So every summer for at least eight summers, if not 10 or 12 summers, um, we went there right after school and lived like Lord of the Flies, just outside all day, you know, fishing and yeah, fishing and barbecuing and not, not barbecuing like they do today. I mean, a big old homemade stone fireplace in the sand. And we would all eat together and we'd make, my mother would make um, clam chowder from all the clams we dug and the fish that we fished. And, you know, we sang, we also sang uh, kind of semi-professionally as a family. We were called the Critchley Sextet. So we sang on the Ten Mac original. That's right. Betsy and her siblings were kind of like the Von Trapp family singers. Here they are performing on the Ted Mack Show in 1958. There are two more at home younger than I am, Donnie and Mark. Oh, for goodness sake, two more at home younger than you. Hmm? Uh, who teaches you this, uh, this barbershop harmony? My father does, Mr. Mack, and he says if, if the six of us don't win tonight, we'll be back next year with eight. Oh, he does. <laughs> That's a promise. Well, why not? The more the merrier. Oh, Mamie Riley, how do you do today? Oh, Mamie Riley, you're going far away. Betsy is the eldest, and she stands well above her siblings. She's pale and moon-faced, and a little bit awkward. And Betsy was definitely, you know, insecure, and, you know, Betsy was always kind of on the side. And when you see the Ted Mack video, you know, when we sang, you will see Betsy in the back just sort of looking down when Ted Mack asked her a question, and Betsy just sort of looks down and sort of half answers it, and then while we're singing, which we had sung these songs forever, Betsy is just sort of mumbling some of the words. This is what I noticed the last time I watched I'll it. I have to watch it again. Yeah. Betsy is kind of mumbling some of the words like she didn't know the words. She couldn't get them out. And looking down instead of looking at the camera. And that was Betsy. She was very kind of shy and insecure. Self-conscious. But self-conscious. Very self-conscious. So that's why she pushed herself to, you know, to do dance therapy and be a, you know, a, 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 a camp counselor. She was great with kids. Jay said Betsy was also struggling with her identity. One thing about Betsy is that I, you know, she was the first person that confronted me about asking me if I was gay. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I was like, what do you mean, you know? Because um, she was, um, when she was in New York, she was driving a taxi. Now, <laughs> apparently, and I think we have a picture of her driving a taxi with a halter top on. Yes, and, you know, yes, like, in shorts. You know, like, carefree, like, you know, nothing's going to happen. Um, and, um, and I believe... I believe that she was bisexual or lesbian and that she was like unclear, you know, she was coming out in a way. 
she recognized that I was gay before I wanted to even tell anyone or even that I even admitted myself. But I, th I think that she was struggling with her own sexual identity. And um, I think that was part of her anxiety about being in the world, you know. Uh, you know, she was always, um, I think she was always feeling like she was just wasn't quite who she was, you know, that she really hadn't really completely owned her, her identity. It breaks my heart to know that Betsy was struggling in this way. It's a difficult journey to come out, and especially at that time, and to an Irish Catholic family. Yet the fact that Betsy could have been queer will become important in a few ways, but more on that later. Eventually, I got to ask Jay and Jerry why Betsy was hitchhiking so far from home in the first place. She got a position teaching creative writing at the University of Vermont in Burlington. I didn't know that. Yes, she did. That's what she was going up to Burlington for. And so therefore she, and my mother had always said to her, she had a little space between the two front teeth. And my mother had always said to her, um, you, you've got to get this fixed. You've got to get this fixed. So Betsy decided before she would start her teaching career after New York City, she moved up to Burlington. And then she decided, okay, she's coming down to her dent to a dentist and getting her teeth taken care of. And so on her way back, not her way down there, her her v, little VW broke down. And so she hitchhiked down to the dentist in Boston. And on the way back, she asked the dentist to drop her off at the highway so she could get back to Burlington to start, you know, in two days teaching her course in creative writing. And she knew she just had to be there. So she got, so that was before Uber and, you know, Lyft and everything else. Um, he dropped her off at at the highway. And Jay, you can continue from there. Well, she was hitchhiking and um and she was picked up by somebody and uh, disappeared, basically, um for seven or eight weeks. I mean, we knew she wasn't she was a missing person for um for a long, you know, like after about, I don't know how many days we heard from one of her friends, Angela, that she didn't return home. And so we started um, putting the word out. You know, Jerry contacted some Sergeant Shriver, who was, was he connected to Massachusetts at the time? Oh, yeah, he, he was, he was. And, uh, you know, but he got in touch with the investigator there and you know, called him and sent notes and everything else. And you know, different people would call us or reconnect. But you know, and then we also began to hire a private investigator ourselves. Also, um, we had a, a, a psychic. We also consulted a psychic. That's right. Then Cece went up and put put signs all over the highway. <laughs> she was bringing sign. My sister Cece put signs all over the highway going up. And, and, you know, nothing happened from that. So for seven weeks, we were all like, you know, trying everything we, you know, nothing, 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 you know. And then they found her body in a morgue. They had um, apparently 
it's been, it had been there for a while, but nobody for some reason hadn't realized that it was her, or I think they checked her dental because the body I think was fairly decomposed at that point. Well, it was also New Hampshire with no services, not too much support behind investigative reporting in New Hampshire. Right. So, um, so her, her, she was identified yeah, at some time at the end of the summer. You know, once we realized that she was actually had been killed, you know, what happened? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. So here's what we know about the state of Betsy's body. She was found fully clothed, but missing shoes and allegedly a backpack that she had been carrying while hitchhiking. She was dressed in maroon denim slacks with a DC label, an off-white sleeveless blouse with a rose-colored butterfly pattern, a maroon bulky knit sweater with a fully fashion label. She had two rings on her right hand, one made from a coin and the other a braided pattern. And here's the detail that jumped out at me. In Betsy's pocket was a watch. And it struck me as odd that it would be in her pocket instead of on her wrist. And I mentioned this to Jay and Jerry. I do not remember Betsy with a watch I at don't all. You? No. I don't. She, she was anti-watch, anti-time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she was like... She was like um, a hip. She was a hippie, you know. I mean, she was like a little late to the hippiedom. Yeah. So I think that she was kind of playing, catching up a little bit on on um, you know, like like alternative. She found a way to to relate to the world that she had been, I think, feeling isolated about. And so I think, so you know, the the idea. I don't, I just don't wouldn't think of her as no. I would never watch. think Betsy with a watch. <laughs> That's a very curious thing. It's interesting that you picked up on that because it is curious. Jane, Amanda, and I are walking through the forest where she was found. This was the first of many sites where women's bodies were left, and it was visibly affecting Jane. She was wandering through the woods, this like stricken expression on her face, sometimes crying, sometimes not, just shaking her head. Jane, how are you feeling? Sad. You can hear the river. Yeah, you can hear it. And this must have been black. It must have been dark. Had She would feel so disoriented. Yeah. Jay, Betsy's brother, told me about a time he too was called to this place. You know, about five years after Betsy's murder, 
And, you know, of course, it's still not officially called a murder. So I called the state police and I said, I'd like to, you to take me where her body was found. So I met them um, and they drove me up this dirt road, beautiful landscape. Um, and we got out of the car and we walked a little ways into the trees and there was this opening and there was a nice little brook going by. And, and they said, well, this is where her body was found. And um, it was right, it was right around dusk. And um, I said, okay, thank you. And so they, the policeman left. And so I was there by myself. And I found this, this large piece of black plastic, like a tarp. And actually the policeman said to me, your sister's body was wrapped in that plastic. And I was like, oh, you know, that's a little, why is it still here? So anyway, I, I, um, I, I took the plastic. It's, it's a large piece about maybe eight by eight foot square. Um, so while I was there, um, I did sort of a, a, a ritual. You know, um, I, I lit some candles and, um, you know, by this time it was dark. I mean, it was pitch dark. It was just me out in the woods. And um, I lit some, I lit a candle and I took a number of photographs. I had my, my camera there and um, a photographs of me and the, and the candle and, and the, the space. And um, it's kind of as just a way of communi communicating with her and with the elements. And um, it was sort of a purging. It was a way for me to, you know, sort of heal, find a way to, you know, connect to, to nature and, you know, where she had returned to nature. And then I went back home and I had this plastic. And so I did a series of um, performance. I wouldn't say performances, I would say performance actions with the plastic. Me and wrapping myself up in it and doing things with it. So I documented all this um, on slides at the time. That, um, and then, um, so I had all these slides that from, from the uh, photographs at, at the site and at home, and um, they disappeared. Yeah, I never lose slides. I mean, you know, I'm an artist. I this, I, this is what I do. I, they, they disappeared. So in a way, I have this experience, and, and maybe that's the way it's supposed to be because, you know, it's a transient experience. It, it's, um, it's, it's a flash of a moment that I literally flashing with the camera in a way it made the experience more powerful because it is just my experience with you know it's only it's a very personal experience that i'm not i can't show any evidence of it like theater you know
As Jay finished his story, I couldn't place the feeling that I had. To imagine Jay twirling in the night wood, draped in the tarp that covered his sister's murdered body. I wonder what it would have felt like to blow the candle out, how dark it must have been. Maybe what I was feeling was a cross between being sad and haunted. Maybe it was heart sickness. Maybe you feel it too, and maybe you can name it. But Jay let us peer through a keyhole of his grief. So maybe I'm also feeling grateful. What I couldn't believe, however, is that this tarp was never collected into evidence. Jay even said he called the police before he used the tarp in his performance piece, asked if they wanted it, and they said no. They didn't need to take it into evidence. This baffles me. This tarp could have been useful, and I needed to get to the bottom of this. Here's Jerry. Um, Now, a very interesting thing happened to me is that I was visiting a friend up in New Hampshire staying overnight with with my two kids skiing. And the next morning I was going to be driving or the next that that afternoon after skiing, I was going to drive down to Connecticut to my mother's house with my two kids. And my sister Cece was there with her two kids. And we were I was going to arrive at about, you know, six o'clock or so. Well, as I was driving down, I'm driving down the highway and I saw Unity, New Hampshire. And I said, listen, kids, we're going to Unity, New Hampshire. And we just took off the highway and went to Unity. It was in the afternoon. We went into this little shop. It was a tiny little town. Went into this little shop. I think it also had a gas station and like a little, very unique 7-Eleven, but it wasn't a franchise. It was very you know, local. And I walked in there and the person behind the desk looked like Betsy. Now, this sounds crazy. She had a space between her teeth. She had, she was tall and thin. She had braids that Betsy every once in a while used to have. And I just stood there and like, ah. And so I started saying, I, I said to her, listen, the reason I'm stopping here is because my sister was killed in this city, in this town somewhere. And, and she said, oh, I heard about it. It actually happened. I, I I clean houses. I clean the house of the woman whose land Betsy was found on. And so I said, oh, my God, um, really? She she called the woman and said I was on my way. And like Jay said, it was getting dark and there are really no trap. There are no lights. I, I came from Washington, D.C. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a city person at this point. There were no lights anywhere. And I'm going down this tiny road with no one around, trees on either side, pitch black. I had no idea where I was going. I thought I'm here with these two young children. What am I doing? I'm out of my mind. I could the car could totally fall apart. And here I am in the middle of the woods. I could be murdered myself. I'm thinking of all this. So finally the woman knew we were coming and she had the light on. So we got there and we pulled in and I went in. And again, this sounds crazy, but this woman reminded me of my mother. She also had been an English language teacher, which my mother had been. And she was, you know, had worked at the school for many years. And she was just very much like my mother, very teacher-like, very kind of disciplined, very 
kind and nice and, and welcoming and hospitable. And she kind of went on and told a bunch of stories. And one of the, well, obviously we talked about Betsy. She said that she let her land be used by, by hunters during hunting season. They asked her if they could use it. So it was not, I don't know what it is, two or three months out of the fall or whatever this was. Um, so these people had gone in there and some of the hunters found Betsy's body with the tarp over it because there had been a mound of leaves and earth and they put the tarp over it. And because Beth, Jay had said that he heard the police say that the body was wrapped in the tarp, but then recently Flanagan said, and this woman said the tarp was over the the you know the body which was which was over the the leaves and the stuff that they put on top of it and so they came to her and told her they had found a body and i think she is the one who called the police we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. So by Jerry's account, it seems like the tarp was put over Betsy's body by the hunters who found her remains. The fact that it was hunters and not loggers, as the papers initially reported, is a little circumspect. But that's the thing with these cold cases that span 30 to 40 years. Details get lost or blurred around the edges. Just to be sure, though, I brought up this tarp to the former Claremont chief of police and lead investigator of the original task force for the Connecticut River Valley cases. His name is Mike Prazo. And while he declined to be recorded, he did tell me that he didn't remember a tarp in any of the cases. Either this tarp was not actually covering Betsy's body, or the police don't know about it because they never entered it into evidence. I went back to double-check this in the Eagle Times. That's a newspaper out of Claremont, New Hampshire, and they initially reported on Betsy's body being found. And it was at this point that I realized I'd overlooked a potentially very important detail. A detail that could break Betsy's case wide open. When I initially spoke to Jay and Jerry, we all flagged the watch in Betsy's pocket as strange and kind of left it like that. But in an article in the Eagle Times dated September 16th of 1981, more details are given on the jewelry found on Betsy's body, including a description of the watch. Here's what it says, quote, a man's silver Timex manual white face watch with a chrome colored expansion band was found in her pocket. End quote. Why did Betsy have a man's watch in her pocket? My mind was working double time to rationalize this. Could someone have given Betsy their watch? Maybe it was the dentist who dropped her off on the highway to hitch back to Vermont. But that seems like an odd thing to do. And it wasn't an expensive watch, so likely couldn't have been pawned for money if Betsy needed any. As we've established, Betsy wasn't dating any men either. And judging by the expansion band, we know it was a watch meant to fit a rather large wrist. 
if, and I know this is pure speculation, but what if Betsy took that watch from the man who abducted her? Betsy was a smart woman, street savvy. She had traveled the world by herself. Perhaps he had taken his watch off and it was dangling from the rearview mirror or set on the dash and Betsy quickly stuffed it in her pocket while he wasn't looking. Betsy feared for her life or at the very least feared some harm would come to her while riding in this man's vehicle. So she took the watch to later give to the police to maybe help identify him. Or, and this is a morbid thought, she knew she was going to die and stashed it there for police to find on her body, as they later did. The watch could be important in two ways. One, it could have a serial number on it, and that serial number could be traced to the person who bought it. Or it's an object that might jog someone's memory, like, oh, my uncle had that watch, or my father had that watch, or my neighbor. And two, it could yield some forensic evidence, fingerprints, or DNA. I've since relayed this detail to the Assistant New Hampshire Attorney General, Jeffrey Strelzen. He declined to comment on if this watch had been properly investigated before. And if it hasn't, he declined to comment on if the watch is even still in evidence. But that's kind of par for course. New Hampshire is notorious for keeping government information, shall we say, close to the vest. And I plan to unpack this issue in great detail in a later episode. The investigation dragged on after Betsy's remains were released, and with no good leads, her case went cold. The Critchleys held a memorial mass at St. Matthew's Church in her hometown of Forestville, Connecticut. Betsy's family had her own poem she had written, printed on her funeral program. The poem is titled Melody. Here it is. Slow embers ignited by a few pokes. Join my tune, my memory, of how songs bonded us, expanded life beyond locality, lifted spirits up. At the bottom of the program, it reads, May the Lord hold her in the hollow of his hand. Three years would pass in relative peace. The valley settled. They could keep pretending that Kathy Milligan's murder in 1978 and Betsy's murder in 1981 were unrelated. Aberrations on an otherwise pristine landscape. It wasn't until the summer of 1984 when 17-year-old Bernice Courdemanche vanished from a road in Claremont, New Hampshire. Next time on Dark Valley, two women vanish from Main Street within a month of each other. Plus, locals become suspicious of an eccentric man who lives at the edge of town. (laughs) 
Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amell. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawlspace Media, Tim Polari, and Lance Reinsterna. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. Please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781. Or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time.